much for the way you read that in the Dave Winfield style. Um, Pete preached here once, many years ago, you know. And uh, we used a pulpit still in those days. We still had pews. And I, he hadn't done it before, I don't think. And I said to him, Pete, whatever you do, catch people from the first sentence. So he, do you remember this? <laughs> he went up there, stood up, opened his Bible, looked around and went, Hallelujah! <laughs> well, that got them. <laughs> You'll notice that we've got a communion here today. Um, communion often feels like it's being tagged on the end, like an afterthought. It's never intended to be an afterthought. But that's the way things go. We come here, we sing hymns, uh, uh, we listen to notices, we listen to prayers, we listen to readings, we listen to sermons. We have words, 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 words. The time passes and then it feels like communion, communion has been tagged on the end. And instead of entering into communion in that spirit, we're here to meet with the Lord. We feel we just want this to finish. Now, pray me, you're not like that. But I often am. So if it's not your confession, it is mine. But we have communion. And I'm asking you to listen to the word and ask God to speak to you. Forget that Dave Winfield's making the noises. Ask God to minister to you. Because we want... Our hope is that as we enter into this communion, we're entering into this communion with real integrity. Which is why I'm mentioning it before I begin. And not just as an add-on at the end. The word of God is to prepare us and to teach us and to enable us to serve God. And I don't know whether you picked it up from Pete's reading, but Jesus is um, in... In the events recorded in this chapter, Jesus is now entering Jerusalem. That's obvious. Everybody knew that. It's not rocket science to tell you that. But remember, it's only a few chapters ago, Jesus was moving as far away from Jerusalem as he could because he wanted to teach his disciples what was about to happen. But events had turned out in such a way that now he'd turned to Jerusalem, he'd set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in setting his face to go to Jerusalem, he knew that he was setting his face to a sacrificial death, which would be physically painful apart from anything else. And now he's entering Jerusalem. And his disciples don't know it, but with hindsight, we know it, that within less than a week of the events recorded in this chapter, Jesus will be having his last supper with his disciples, And the following day, he will be dead. That's in less than a week from the events that we're reading about. And Jesus is aware of this. He's gone up to Jerusalem, set his face to go to Jerusalem, because he knows, he understands what's ahead of him, though his disciples haven't sussed it. In less, in a week from the events, Jesus will be rising from the dead. The inconceivable will be happening. The Christ will be raised from the dead. But who can see that from this point in time? Only Christ knows that. And it's his knowledge of that we learn from elsewhere in the scripture, which enables him to go through this week with integrity and without sin. This is a... It is impossible for me to begin to understand how the Christ may have felt. 
One thing we can say is that from this point, the beginning of what we have as chapter 11 here, Jesus has nailed his colours to the mast fully. He's been telling people not to say who he is up until now, to keep it to themselves. But right now, Jesus is entering Jerusalem and he goes in intentionally riding on an ass's colt. He sends his disciples off to get one. We shouldn't be surprised that they were allowed to take it, because although Mark doesn't mention it, John mentions that just a few days beforehand, he had performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus had been dead for four days. And there were hordes of people coming from all directions into Jerusalem for the big feast of the Passover, and the crowds that had been present at the raising of Lazarus had been passing on this news. The crowds were taking it into Jerusalem, and John was telling us that when, the, when the, it was being reported in Jerusalem what this prophet, Jesus from Nazareth, had actually done, people were now streaming out of Jerusalem to meet him. This explains the, sort of, the, 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 sort of the coming together of the crowds and the excitement that surrounded Jesus as he went in. But Jesus intentionally sent off his disciples to get the colt. And this news of Lazarus must have, must have said, oh, well, if it's the Lord who's going to do it, that's brilliant. The, the man that raised Lazarus is going to be riding our animal. That's fantastic. So, the purpose of riding in this way, and you will be aware of this if you've been a Christian for a long time, is that in Zechariah, it's reported in advance, it's prophesied, Behold, see your king comes, lowly, and riding on the colt, an ass's colt. In other words, that is a symbolism in the Middle East, in the ancient world, of a king coming in peace. He hasn't come on a war horse, He hasn't come with his legions marching behind him. He's come in peace on an ass's colt. So whatever they expected from their Messiah, Jesus is coming in peace in a different way from what they expected. Not to rout the Romans or to destroy their distant enemies. He's coming in peace into Jerusalem to his own people and he's coming in intentionally as king, the Messiah. And the crowd seemed to pick that up, whether they understand it or not. It was, it was, it was um, tradition in, in many of these big feasts that when, when the pilgrims came from different directions and began to enter Jerusalem, then the people in Jerusalem would go out and greet them. And they would greet them with quotations from Psalm 118, which is what we find here. That's what they're shouting out. Hosanna, blessed is, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting out from Psalm 118. This is traditional, but as Jesus came in intentionally in this kind of way, it's almost as though their chants took on a, 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 new, a new significance. This, there was no longer tradition. This was the man that had raised Lazarus. This is the man that had done all these wonderful works. This is the man we've heard of for so long. And now he's coming in. And he's coming in. We have our king. We have our Messiah. Hosanna! Other events take place, but I want to quickly pass to the end of the chapter and then come back. At the end of the chapter, we find Jesus being confronted by an incredible delegation of people. By that time, 
you remember from the reading, he's entered Jerusalem, he's, uh, he's been violent with the trades going on hypocritically in the temple. And the priests have decided they want him dead. At the end of the chapter, we find this delegation. We're told that their chief priests, their scribes, and their elders. These are the people in Jerusalem who have the authority in Jerusalem. They are the bishops, they are the theologians, they are the city councillors, if not MPs. And they have gathered together in this delegation, and as they approach Jesus, everybody who knows the area will know that here we've got the bigwigs, the guys who have got their finger on the pulse, and who have got Jerusalem under their thumb. And these guys are saying to Jerusalem, who, to Jesus, who gave you authority to do these things? Well, they know the significance of his riding in to Jerusalem. They understand that significance. But now, who gave you authority? Now, when they're asking this question, remember that just a few verses beforehand, they're looking for a way to kill him. This is not a delegation of inquiry. This is a delegation to find reasons to condemn. But it's all sugary in the way that it's done, and they're using their authority. But if he's the Messiah, they should bow before his authority. And they won't accept that. It seems as though Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he answers it. They know it. Tell me about John's baptism. Was that from heaven or from men? Well, all the crowd said it was from heaven. And John said, behold, this is the one I told you about. The one who's mightier than I. The one who's the latches of whose shoes I'm not, I'm not even worthy to unloose. This Jesus is the one that has been prophesied. I am just the one who's declaring him. They knew that. The crowd said John, John was a prophet from God. But they weren't going to acknowledge that Jesus was their Messiah. They wanted him dead. And they were scared of the crowds in all their authority at this point in time. They weren't going to rile those crowds. Not now. Their own jobs were at stake. But if they said it was from men, well, that would really get the crowds going. And so they said, well, we don't know. Yeah, the bishops, the theologians, the city councillors, they couldn't suss it. Oh yeah? No, we don't know. Then I won't tell you by what authority I do it. And hidden under those words is, and you know jolly well <laughs> on whose authority I'm doing this. So Jesus has made his mark, he's nailed his colour to the mask. He has come... Now. The, he understands more, he understands of himself more than anybody else, obviously. He, he walks through this whole week and through these whole events in the integrity of knowing that he is the Father's Son, the promised Messiah, the Saviour. He cannot deny himself 
It says somewhere, God cannot deny himself, I think. And in this integrity, he walks through the events of this coming week. And so things that he says and things that he does seem to be extraordinary if you're there. And we tend to gloss over them because we're familiar with the readings. So let's go back. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's evening. And what strikes me is the things that Jesus sees. So I want to approach the next couple of minutes from that perspective. Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around. And what does he find? He sees a fantastic, the apparatus of the religious cultus working perfectly. But there's injustice there, there's robbery there, there's thievery there, there's unbelief there, there's hypocrisy there. This isn't faith in God. This is the apparatus of religion serving itself. And wasn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? And look what these people have made it. There's personal, a sense of personal insult in this. Because he is the father's son. But it's late. He goes away. How did he spend the night? We know he spent often the night in prayer. What did he do this night? He's looking for something from his people. And he doesn't find it. On the way into Jerusalem the next day, from a distance, he sees a fig tree. He's gone from Bethany to Bethphage. Bethphage actually means house of figs. There would have been figs in the street and all over the place, I guess. Anybody been there? No, nor have I. (laughs) (laughs) So he sees a fig tree in the distance and it's in leaf. Now, something about the way fig trees grows is they have a summer crop. But in the springtime, the tree often grows or develops what you might call the, the leftovers of last season. So that on last season's growth, some fruit appears. It's not the harvest, it's, it's the hangover from last year. But it appears on the tree before the leaves are fully out and formed. So if from a distance you see a fig tree in its with its leaves fully opened, giving the shade which they were so famous for, then you might seriously expect to find some of that end of last year stuff. And Jesus is hungry, and he sees the tree, and he goes to it, and there's nothing on it. Just like Israel of old. Listen to this from Micah chapter 7. What misery is mine... I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. 
Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judges accepts bribes. Just the Jerusalem of Micah's day, the Israel of Micah's day, is the Jerusalem of his day. And he sees in this fig tree, this barrenness, the barrenness of the people that are ruling the religion of the day. And he says, may no one ever eat from you again. Because this is a sham. Which is what he sees in the temple. And he goes into the temple and then we have these what might be seen as acts of violence. Is he a man of, in a rage? Is he out of control? He's not out of control. Because although Mark doesn't mention it, Matthew does, that after he performed these acts of turning over the tables and so on, the lame and the sick came into the temple and he healed them. Now the man that is out of his head with rage doesn't do that, does he? A man who has given in to his anger and just fumes doesn't do that. This was a controlled wrath against the things that were unjust. Because when worshippers came into the temple, they were required to pay a temple tax. It was a half shekel. But they could only pay in temple currency. There was copper coins and silver coins apparently in Palestine. And also there was Persian, um, Roman, Syrian, Tyrian and Egyptian currency in circulation. So in order to pay their temple text, worshippers had to come in and change their money. I went into East Berlin once with a bunch of people. We passed through Checkpoint Charlie. We had to change our German marks into East German marks and they ripped us off. And when we came back, we had to do the same again and they ripped us off a second time. And that's what was happening in the temple. And they were ripping off all people, the poor people as well. And Jesus turns over the benches of those that are selling doves. Doves are for the impoverished. It's not the rich that brought doves for their sacrifices, it was the poor. And they were being ripped off again. And they've turned this, this faith of people or this longing of people for God into a money-making racket. Reminds me of all the stalls that go around behind the Pope. Not that he has organised them, but that others do. The Pope goes around and then you buy your, your bleeding hearts and your badges and somebody rips you off and makes a fortune out of it. That's what they were doing. My house is to be a house of prayer. And we're told in this chapter that the people were amazed at his teaching. What was it about his teaching that amazed them? Was it that actually somebody had stripped these priests and people bare of their hypocrisy and exposed them? Is that what amazed them? Was it that for us... Just for a few short hours, people could come into the temple and actually get a fair exchange for their temple tax? 
Or was it something in his bearing and his manner? Because he knew who he was and what he was there for. And this was his father's house. And he who has seen Jesus has seen the father. This is how God feels about this. And did they sense that? Did the people hear him and without being able to put it into words, had this sense of this personal drama of God in their presence, judging their worship? Scary thought, isn't it? Things aren't always what they seem to be. So when we come to communion, I just want to ask you, I don't know. I look at your faces, God looks at your hearts. You listen to my words, God looks at my heart. When we come to this communion and Jesus looks, what is he going to see? What is he going to see that we're going to take out into the week with us tomorrow? Do we need to revise our inner position with God when we come here so that when he takes us out into the week tomorrow, it's with a new kind of integrity? Which brings us to the next day. And with this. In the morning again they went along and they saw the fig tree which Jesus had spoken against. And now Peter sees it. Lord, <laughs> the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus comes up what always has seemed to me to be a strange answer. Have faith in God and he talks about prayer. Now I heard a joke this week which relates to this passage. A little boy hears his Sunday school teacher say that whatever you ask, believing that you have it, you will receive it. So he's pleading with God for a bike. And it doesn't seem to arrive. So he complains to his mother that the Sunday school teacher said that whatever you ask in God, believing that you get it, you'll get it. And he's asking for a bike and he hasn't got it yet. And his mum, rightly or wrongly, you decide, says it doesn't work like that. So the little boy went away and thought about it and he came back and he said, well, mum, if I steal a bike and ask for forgiveness, is that all right? (laughs) That is a brilliant example of what this passage is not about. (laughs) Remember the circumstances that Jesus is in. Mountains. Oh, Mountains were so full of symbolism in Israel. They provided brilliant vistas, so you go up a mountain, go survey the land, Abraham is told. Wonderful vistas. They influenced higher rainfall, and that is brilliant. So they became symbols of fertility, and places which were grazing places and hunting places, and Because they were inaccessible, they became brilliant places of refuge. Mountains in Israel were full of symbolism as well as being mountains. But also, they were symbols of difficult paths in lives and obstacles and other spiritual opposition. If you want to check it out, I've got all the references here. Come and see me afterwards.
And Jesus has got a bunch of people trying to kill him. In less than a week, he will be dead. He will be crucified. He will be bearing the sins of his persecutors. He will be saying from the cross of his persecutors, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he'll be suffering as we can not imagine suffering. But he also knows there's the other side of the grave. And how's he going to get through this week? He's going to cry out to God to move these mountains, to break down these obstacles, to open up a way for faith for the people so the worship can become real and the people can be salvaged for God. These great obstacles that are going to kill him. What he has not seen in the temple is faith in God. They look at this judgment on the tree, which is a a prediction of the judgment of Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples, have faith in God. You have faith in God. And Jesus is going to demonstrate over this next week, they'll realise it, what trusting God means. It means going through hell sometimes. Maintaining your integrity for the glory of God, whatever is thrown at you. And in this context, he says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, be taken up and be cast into the sea, it will be done for them. And then he adds this bit at the end about forgiveness. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. That's not an add-on. He is going to have to be forgiving people all through the week, as he has done all through his life. All the way up to his last gasp, he is going to be forgiving people, so that the purpose of God can be fulfilled in the answer of the prayer. That these mountains and obstructions to faith amongst the people will be laid low. I'm not just preaching now. I'm not going to go into all the details because it would be unsavoury. But I'm going to finish with a poem I wrote once. I was here, in this place. And people, a handful of people, were putting me and one or two others through hell. And what happens when you do that? So that if I say, go out and be a Christian in the workplace, even if it costs you, I have been there. 
I'm not being a prissy minister standing up the front and saying, I say it, you do it. I want you to know I've been there. And when it's all going pear-shaped and people are really trying to mess you up and get you out, you get down on your knees and you cry out to God, are they right? Where have I sinned? Show me, God. I don't want to be a minister who is dishonouring you. And you cry out those things day and night. But at the same time, you have to stand on your integrity, on the things which you know to be the non-negotiables of God. Not the flexible things, but the non-negotiables of God. And you have at the same time to stand firm on the non-negotiables. And you have to stand firm and look people in the eye and say, I'm sorry, this is what God says. Look at it. And then, when they get bitter with you, you have to remember, you can't play bitterness with bitterness. Don't become like them in attitude. Cry out to God, may this mountain be moved, Lord God. And help me to forgive what's going on around me. And I wrote this poem, and it's totally biblical like hinds on high places gazelles on the slopes no problem are mountains to thee thou dost leap across peaks and dance on the crags and conquer the heights that beat me so Lord make my feet like the feet of the hind to stand on the heights there with thee and when mountains won't move then we'll move on them and trample them down to the sea. And God, have faith in God. Follow Jesus. Jesus.